And have you ever used spider attack while pitching? Um, I don't. That's the great thing about sports. Oh, good for you. I don't know. I, I don't know if. Uh, you play to win. I don't know quite. I don't quite know how to answer this. Um, if Biden got in, you'd be paying seven dollars, eight dollars, nine dollars. Didn't they say get rid of your car? No, God! No! No, no God! Please, no! 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 Boy, that escalated quickly. Quite uh, difficult conditions today, but uh, it was a really fun race and a long finishing stretch in today's race. So you had to make sure you save a little energy for that. Um, I did, Brooksy. If I wanted to explain it to you, I would. First of all, skis need wax. They gotta have paraffin ironed onto them once in a while, and you're going to have to scrape skis, and when you do... Anything's possible! Anything's possible! You read some obscure passage and then pretend you, you pawn it off as your own as your own idea just to impress some girls, embarrass my friend. See, the sad thing about a guy like you is in 50 years, you're going to start doing some thinking on your own and you're going to come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. First of all, skis need wax. And... Good afternoon. This is the Cedar Skier Podcast, the fastest growing Nordic ski specific podcast in all of Lake County, and surely the most dynamic, invasive, intrusive, investigative podcast maybe in the entire world. Uh, we are glad that you are here. We're glad that you're joining us. We have a great season lined up for you. Actually, according to um, latest reports from Ajay, our intern producer, she has just notified me today that she actually has not scheduled any interviews for uh, the upcoming shows, which is great news uh, because it means that the possibilities are endless of who we could have on, anyone from Johannes Klabo to uh, my brother. So we're really excited for another season. This actually technically will be our third season, I think, of Cedars Gear podcasting. We kind of started during the pandemic. If you want to go back, listen to our first show ever. We talked to Zach Caldwell about ski speed and um, you know ski reviews. It was like three hours. It was great. Um, and we've probably gone downhill pretty much since then. Um, actually, what I did realize over the last month was that if I don't get on Shovel Lake Public Radio here and spew thoughts that are piling up in my brain, it becomes very congested inside the intestinal structures of my thought waves. And so today's show, it could be interesting, could be a lot of... Um, a word vomit coming at you at high speeds and with very damaging levels of chemicals. Now, uh, with that being said, let's kick things off here with talking about the month of May, which for most skiers is kind of the signaling point to where you start your season May 1st. Everyone's getting all excited there. They're, they're sharpening up their roller ski tips and getting out there for those few, first few roller skis. And and um, as I was trying to savor the last days on snow, which didn't make it as far as I'd hoped, although that wasn't a snow issue, it was actually more of a road closure issue. Let, let, let's get on that right away, because this season, third season for me of kind of skiing up here in Colorado, and um, I'm a little disappointed that it, it was, I guess, bookended either at the beginning and at the end by some road closure issues that prevented me from getting on snow. At the beginning, it didn't actually. I just... I was very diligent and was trekking up to Hagerman Road where I knew there was a lot of snow to ski on and going back and forth. But at the end of the season, right around May 5th, May 6th, there was a lot of snow left to be skied, a lot of crust, good crust up on Hagerman Road. But they closed the road on Turquoise Lake down lower and, and we just we couldn't get to the snow factory. So I decided to kind of close things up. I, I actually haven't looked at my training journal when my last day was, but it was sometime around the May 5th to May 7th range. 
uh, it was a little. Di- that's a little disappointing, you know. Um, I'm not sure what kind of impact that's going to have, you know, eight months from now when I'm lining up to try and race the marathon series. And if you're laughing at that, then good, you have some sensibility. And that brings me to my first point here. One of the first realizations I had was there should be no, no one should be roller skiing in the month of May. Okay, there's my hot take. No one. And here, here's my logic. Okay, if you are at such a high level of skiing that you're maybe skiing 11 or 12 months out of the year, well, I guess, you know, 11-ish months of the year, cutting your brakes and stuff, you, you probably have the ability to get on snow in May. Either you are going to a, a camp in early May or mid-May or late May. You live in Alaska where you can ski, you know, 10 and a half, 11 months of the year, even if you're just a regular old Joe uh, or a snow addict like myself. I, if I lived in Alaska, I'm pretty sure I would just ski 12 months out of the year. And, and, and or you're in Norway. You know, you're, my point being, you're in a place, a situation where you probably can get on snow or justify traveling to a place where you can get on snow. If you really want to get on snow in May, you can do it. Um, so that's the first reason you wouldn't need to be roller skiing. If you're at that level where you should be training in May, your, your exact ski specific sport, then that would be what you're doing. But what I see a lot of people in May who are roller skiing, it's, it's kids. And I'm going to cross that out right there. It's like those kids should be at a different sport. They should be doing a different sport, um, and, or running or biking. There's just, there's so many other things they could be doing. Are they really becoming, that much better of a skier by roller skiing in May? I don't know. It just seems kind of weird. Um, and and in the long run, if you're like, no, it really is making a big difference skill acquisition-wise, in the long run, though, is it going to be better for them to do that or to, to explore some other sports? I think there's some debate that you could kind of go back and forth. And, and then you kind of have, I think, people, let's say you're the, well, the marathon skiers. Uh, let's look at like the Vismos, okay, the hardcores, the people double pulling four hours every day, six days a week, 12 months of the year. Those guys, you know, on the one hand, you just kind of go, this is essentially they are like a distance runner. They're doing the one movement pattern 11 and a half months a year. Just like a runner, a runner is going to run 11 to 12 months of the year. They're just, they're going to take two weeks off uh, in the spring and two weeks off after some fall marathon. And that's it. Like you're running every day or twice a day, every other day. So on the one hand, I can kind of see where a Visma guy might hop into roller skiing early because they're just going to be skiing so much anyway, roller skiing and on snow that it's it's pretty standard. But I just I think the World Cup level athletes again get you have access that you're getting on snow or make it a point to get on snow. If that's like the belief system you have, then plan in May and June to like go to Alaska and relocate there. I mean, you're already living out of a suitcase so much of the time anyway, and it, and even in May and June, they're going to bend for 3 weeks or they're going to Jesse Diggins' wedding for a couple of weeks or whatever, you know, like <laughs> just let that slide in there. I was not invited. There were creepers across the planet. Um, uh, the Nordic swap group on Facebook, every 40 to 60 year old man on there was heartbroken, crestfallen a few weeks ago to watch as Jesse Diggins tied the knot um, and, and took herself off of the market officially here and I think there were just a lot of creepers that we can expect to have probably going through some rough times. So if you're one of those people tuning in right now, I just want to remind you that um, it's going to be okay. And um, there will be you can still write creepy things on Instagram and say you guys you guys look great together. And and we all know that when you type something like that, really you are trying to be the bigger man and you're trying to hide your emotions and your love for Jesse Diggins. Um, and we, we know that we can see right through it. So don't, don't even do that anymore. You know, like I, I would rather see you comment something a little more just placid, just, you know, and don't comment at all for crying out loud. She's not reading your comments. Okay. Oh my gosh. Where was I? Well, yeah. Roller skiing in May. I, I do have a little bit of dilemma. The hardcores of you out there who are like, well, what if I'm training for the Berkey? Okay, I'm training for the Berkey, Ryan. I got to start logging some Ks in May. No, you don't. Okay, you don't. Um, you can, but again, if we're thinking long-term benefit, um, I, I just think 
you can maximize your time on well where was i going with this oh yeah if you are someone who's that serious that you would want to be doing that anyway you chances are you're living in a place where you again have access to snow pretty late uh mid-april maybe let's say uh, maybe even into may if you're in colorado and and so at that point i would just say if, if your last day of snow is between april 20th and may 5th um hit the reset button like the entire month of may for you should be active recovery and mental recovery in my in my book in the last two years i've actually well one year i know i i didn't start roller skiing until i think july 1st and um my litmus usually for me it's it's when i want to go roller skiing again then i kind of will you know um the whole the people who are like may 1st they're just thrilled to get those roller skis out i love the enthusiasm there but um that that those are the people that January fifth you always you run into them at races in February and they they talk about how three weeks ago they were just burned out and they got a cold and they're they're just they they seem as if the season has already ended for them and it hasn't even started you know you got to keep in mind you're peaking for a race season that lasts from mid to late January sometimes even February through mid March. Um, so back that up. If you're like training for the Chicago marathon in October, this would be the equivalent of you like starting your intervals, race intervals in like December, you know, and that would just be ridiculous. And skiing is one of the greatest things about skiing is that you can gain fitness doing so many different things too. So, um, yeah, I'm a big proponent. If you're out there and you were kind of worried, like, what if I'm not really excited about getting back on roller skates and like hammering the pavement. Uh, I, I, I'm not doing it. I think there's a lot of benefits. My approach to this is I like to use May to maximize time on snow for that skill acquisition, massive volume. If I can, um, I'm not flying out to places to do so, but when it's accessible, I just like to ski for tons of time and just maximize that. And then when it's done, uh, you know, I have a little ceremony and I burn all of my race bibs and I, I'm just kidding. I don't do that, but I, I try to just kind of put a closure. I look back at the year and I think about the warm fuzzies and, and then I forget about skiing for a while because I think it's important to do that. And I pretend that I'm a pro runner, a pro cyclist, and I kind of get in that, that groove. And eventually right around the time when it needs to midsummer, late summer, you you kind of start getting the the steam built up and so by september and october your roller ski sessions are like the staple and they're fun you're not feeling burnt out you're feeling like you enjoy those crisp fall mornings where you're roller skiing i just i'm not for the scenes of like really hot sweaty humid roller skis that doesn't do it for me like i i i think it's important to go suffer and stuff but i'd rather i'd rather be running in that weather i'd rather be biking in that weather and i think you can build a lot of aspects of fitness doing that and i also think this is a good time of the year to focus on the weight room i've been trying to uh to kind of make that step back in when i have to drive into Vale for Vale daily I try to try to get over to the Mintern fitness center that's just been my approach so i know i'm giving you lots of inside baseball secrets to my training here that that you did not expect and did not sign up for but I thought it was important to update people on it. And and I, I do have to say, I'm feeling a little bit down on myself lately. I, <laughs> I just haven't been uh, quite the volume monster that I pride myself on. And, and, you know, if Jim Galanis is listening right now, he is probably rejoicing. He's very thrilled to hear that we've reduced some of the volume. My running has been going great. So I've been upping the running for the first time in a couple of years and I haven't really gotten hurt. So that's just a really positive. And in doing that, my routine has shifted a little more to, you know, a run in the morning and then trying to get and bike in the afternoon. But, um, yeah, I just, I, I haven't really felt there, there's been a lot of afternoons where, like just getting to 90 minutes on the bike has been a struggle. And um, for me, I think, I, you know, you have to kind of listen to yourself and go, all right, well, I'm not, I'm not quite recharged. Bal- you balance the positive self-talk of like, hey, it was, you know, you reached for some goals this winter, you're still kind of recovering. You balance that with like, I don't want to slide up into the deep end of bad habits of like, oh, I guess this is fine now. 75 minutes is fine. 60 minutes is fine. Oh, but I'm just not even going to go out in the afternoon. I'm a dad after all. You got to kind of balance that. And, and I am figuring that out a little bit. Um, but, you know, I'm excited. I think the roller skiing, I, I'm sort of I'm sort of getting excited for some challenges I have this in the middle of the summer. You want to double pull up some mountain passes. So I can't wait too long. Uh, but I have not gone out 
for a roller ski yet. Now, as far as skiing does go, I did have a nice little series that I was working hard on uh, right in the turning over the leaf from May to June. I was on the U.S. ski team. And so if you did not read that, you should go to the Vail Daily and you know, you can Google search me or go to your sports page. You can find the eight or nine part series. And the last couple were on cross country skiing specifically and had some great conversations with some wonderful individuals, Brian Fish and Greta Anderson. And that was uh, really good chats. It was a little stressful trying to transcribe and then um, get that stuff out there into an article form in like a 12 hour span. The other stories were written uh, more in advance um, and I had more time to work with it. Um, but, th- but there were some points, I think, I didn't really get to go as deep into a couple of them as I wanted to. And one of them, I think that is, I, I guess, meaningful. I've been trying to think about this quite a bit. Um, and that is talent identification. This is something that Brian Fish was really talking about. Well, maybe, actually, maybe I don't want to go to this first. Let's, let's, get, let's back up just a little bit. Some of the broader themes that that I've taken away from from the research, from interviewing the 14 or 15 people. Granted, a lot of this was alpine skiers, but there were some cross-country skiers as well. And then, of course, my own just intuition. How am I feeling about this sport? I think um, I think the, the major theme, and I do kind of write this out in the story, is basically the sport of skiing. There are challenges in the U.S. geographically. There's challenges culturally. There's challenges financially. Those, many of them are tied back to just the inherent nature of skiing, especially the financial cost and the access barrier. It's very tied into the fact that skiing is a sport that that, that um, depends upon the relationship of mechanical friction, gravity, th- those things to, to produce ski speed. It's a mechanical sport. It's not quite the same thing as just say, running, where you're just out running. The reason that this becomes a big deal, I think, is because of access. For running, you you never at any point in your life can be um, could consider yourself to have zero chance of becoming a professional runner. I mean, obviously, you get older and you're just you're probably not going to do it. But when we're talking about uh, athletes coming up, growing up, they, if they wanted to, they could train themselves. They could get in 335, 1500 meter shape. They could make, make the standard at a meet, and then they could go run at the Olympic trials, and the rest could be history. And I, I understand that the stories that we see of, um, I'm trying to think the, um, this, that in 2016, we had an 800 meter runner who ran at Adams State University. Gosh, what's his name? I'm going to have to Google this. Boris Berrien. Thank you. Uh, Google Boris Berrien and you know he was a phenomenal college runner but then he really lost his way and and you know the famous part of his story is that he was just working I think at McDonald's or Burger King you know and then got himself back into shape and he ended up being making a world championship team I think he maybe even won an indoor world I'm not sure if that's let's see yeah he was a gold the gold medalist in 2016 the world indoor gold medalist in the 800. Um, but the point being that, yeah, it's not like it's not like these amazing miracle stories are the norm, but the system itself allows for the broadest people to have access to the sport for as long as possible. And that's what drives and allows competition and sort of that capitalist, um, you know, idea to to give bring the best athletes and best performances to the top all of the time. And the capitalist regime, the capitalist uh, um, uh, energy source, I guess, in Nordic skiing operates differently because of the effect of that mechanical relationship. In other words, there still is um, a, a battle and a war that takes place, but it's it ends up being um, influenced by who has the most resources. Now. Recently on Faster Skier, they've been writing these stories on the glide wax protocols and sort of that impact. And I, after I read that first one, you know, I, I do have to kind of side. Well, I'll back up first. I, I was definitely on the side of uh, why wouldn't we do this? Seems like a good idea. At least evens the playing field a little bit. But um, as I've gotten into the sport more, I've seen that, that that really doesn't do that. You know, these people who know a lot more than I do are saying things like all you're doing is um, – putting a larger premium on other factors of ski speed. So ski selection, ski choice, the person who has the most grinds, the person who, and I think this is by far the most important overall thing, the person who has access to a person who can make fast skis. Um, 
and, and it just puts more of a premium on that. So I'm not sure the wax protocol thing, well, good in intention, isn't going to really solve that issue much at all. Um, and actually on that point, I'm sort of curious, this is something that popped into my brain. I was wondering about this as these people are commenting on it, you know, the, the Zach Caldwells and you, if you're in the Nordic ski community, you know, the individuals that you go to for grinds, you know, the individuals who are kind of the savants in that area. There's not that many of them. Now there are, you know, obviously most of the, I would, I would think most of the club coaches in our area, whether it's Sun Valley or SMS, um, you know, any of these major ones, they, they have people, wax techs who know what they're doing, but, but that's just, that's not a lot of people in the country in general, you know, and this is another huge difference or problem. I think in the sport, if there was any way that you could, you know, idealistically make even the playing field, it would be that every kid who has who, who decides they want to try cross-country skiing has immediate free access to the to a Zach Caldwell that would be that would be the the dream scenario right it would be that every that no one is at a disadvantage that way but we have these kind of center points throughout the country of people who like kind of have the corner on the market on making fast skis and and I'm sure they kind of enjoy that in some regards like why would they want that knowledge to be widespread enough that ability to be widespread enough so that they're not as valuable that wouldn't be good for their business but that would be good for for increasing kind of the um equality side it would just be that every single person showing them to meet they're not like well i have ryan cedarquist waxing my skis so they're probably not going to be all that competitive you know it would be it would be in some dream world that everyone's skis are going to be equally competitive regardless of all the mechanical factors that go into it flex relationship with snow grinds wax choices all that stuff um and and i get that you know that's that's a dream world but that you you would have to be honest that that would be required if you wanted to just quote level the playing field that's really the only way you're going to do it so i guess there could be an initiative and a push and this might not be that bad for our country is to push to educate wax techs uh, i know even at the the highest level of sport we kind of are are usually in need of that it seems like that's often a talking point is we're skis competitive well you and, and with the u.s ski team they do a good job of of uh, I think protecting that relationship between athlete and wax tech, and and also still being pretty transparent with the public, but it it still it's it just always comes up, and you you rarely hear that in the with the big countries like the Norways. It's rare, and when it does, it's usually very negative connotations and a, and a thing of disaster. So maybe that is a push that our nation actually has to improve on is trying to broaden our education for people in terms of creating fast skis you know let's let's get clinics for coaches where that is the the major point of training for them and it's still important to train technique and train all those other things too but maybe that's something where they need to look at um, because it's not only going to level the playing field create more accessibility but it's going to make those best athletes have more confidence in their wax decks because the wax decks will just be better um but backing up a little bit the whole idea of leveling the playing field and trying to make it accessible for everyone there is a little bit of a you know initially before i even just hopped into this series i definitely was on the side of how could that be a bad thing that that has to be that should be the goal we should want to have cross-country skiing um, operate in much in the same way as many of the sports where we are extremely successful. And when you look at basketball, baseball, football, track and field, we have kids who uh, there aren't really barriers for them doing those sports. And thus we have a massive base and through the interscholastic and collegiate pathways, we see athletes rise based on their initiative, based on their ability and their talent and their drive. And that's basically it, you know, and you can make little arguments that there's politics in other sports and there definitely is, you know, I, I was in basketball, I saw that side of the world for sure, but I never felt like, um, like I was held back 
necessarily to the point of like like if I had been so good, the ball the ball would have been coming to me more. I I could argue that well, I averaged sixteen point one points per game my senior year, and and I really could average twenty three. And maybe that would have given me another chance at playing in a Division II school. I, I, I would say that's valid, you know, me just knowing myself. But if I would have been Steph Curry, I, I think it would have broken through. And some of that I hear from ski coaches like, if you're good enough, they'll notice. If you're good enough, you're going to make it through. There's also some truth to that statement. But the system as a whole is not made in such a way that you could have done even what I did in high school, which was very late bloomer, five foot seven, hundred pounds as a freshman, and very overlooked. Well, when I hit my growth spurt as a junior, all the ability and tools finally had a chance to be put on display, and and now I'm on the varsity at a very large school. That would never happen in cross country skiing, uh, um, and, and it can't happen really because of the way um, athletes have to move through it you'd be out of the sport at that point because you would kind of be overlooked. So that's, that is that point. I will still say I'm kind of on board for as a reason why I think you, you could say we should try to make this accessible. We should try to level the playing field as early and, and as, as possible. I think there's some validity to that, but I also think the biggest thing I learned in this whole series was you almost have to look at skiing in the same way you view a sport like gymnastics. Notice how people are not clamoring for athletes, you know, to have way more direct access to gymnastics and let's broaden the base and all those things. And the reason is, is we all can see that that's a sport that you need to commit to aggressively and early. And the reason is because it's so skill acquisition based. Um, that you can't come to gymnastics as a 12-year-old and make it to the Olympics as a 13-year-old. But you kind of have your Olympic window is basically 13 to 17, you know, with exceptions on on the later end, of course. Um, and so th- that w- that's interesting is to kind of adopt that of like, all right, there, there's, there is a little bit of truth to that. It's, it's the nature of the sport is such that it's a blend of skill acquisition and strength and, uh, you know, ability too. The, the reason I think that, and I didn't really, I tried to weave this in, but this is kind of my personal opinion. The reason that the cross-country skiing specifically, I think, gets thrown into this meat grinder discussion so often is because it sort of falsely presents itself as this sport for all. The the idreat, or however you say that word, idea that this is a sport not just for the masses but actually for the poor and that's kind of where it was birthed out of in the mid-1800s this is for well-being this is for fitness for getting outside for you and your families Um, and all that's true but it but it presents itself on that one layer of being something that is for all people it's not really like a total niche sport and this is why in Norway I think the cultural aspect really does help them is they've actually embodied that you know 99% of everyone (laughs) skiing so they just they actually do have a huge base. And so that sort of blurs things. And then you also have the idea that people who are in cross-country skiing are typically a little more type A. And so they are a similar crowd that would be in a sport like running, which is literally the most, you know, cut and dry activity there is. There, there's, there's, there is no politics in running, or at least there shouldn't be in, to some degree because the stopwatch is the final judge. And so when you blend those two ideas with, with, within a sport that does kind of have a very political, very skill acquisition based, it makes it confusing. And, th- and I think this is why there's so much trouble because on the one hand, you can't really get away from the impact of, say, a five or six year old who started skiing when they were very little and had a lot of time on snow, facets that, you know, Dan Lever would say are irreplaceable for performance and development later on. You can't really replace that. And yet you're trying to deal with people who want, who are very competitive and are, and are like, I deserve a chance. I've worked as hard as I can. Why can't we make this more objective? Uh, we need that. So I think that, that is a big takeaway of why I've sort of seen why all these factors are even worthy of a discussion. I will say after talking, though, to the Peter Langs of the world, you know, and he his whole point is <clears throat> this is kind of just the way it is. It's only going to get worse. And, 
you know, you can decide to go into it. You can decide to enjoy skiing at the level that you're able to afford, or you can just choose to pick a different sport. And there's a little bit of a hardened side of me where I think uh, he might have a point there. Um, and it, it it's hard. Like, I think... I think I, I at least personally have some peace with the fact that this is the this is the sport you signed up for, and so sometimes you're going to show up at races, and even even high level citizens races we're talking about now, you're going to show up at races and and sometimes feel like your skis are competitive. Sometimes they're just a little slower than people next to you, but it doesn't matter. And sometimes they're maybe a little bit faster, and that's just that's the reality of it. And you have to kind of be at peace going in knowing that yeah this isn't the same thing as a road 10k where the the fastest fittest person on that day will always emerge as the the winner and but but you know you just got to go in it i think i think it becomes a little more complicated though when we talk about kids and so this brings us i guess into a nice transition talking a little bit about a quote that brian fish said and this didn't end up in my story um but he the talk talking about talent id the first quote actually did it. You know, he said it comes up often. I would challenge any coach in any sport if they've yet to come up with a great single test to identify talent. And he basically, he said, you know, he, he focuses on promoting talent. I, I'm all for this, I think, in the realm of cross-country skiing. I think he hits the nail on the head perfectly here. But going back to that first comment, he said, um, let's see, it really comes down to their choice that they really have a passion for that and the work ethic to do it. These two things are really critical. So in any talent ID, in any field, business, education, or sport, I think there's a true authentic, they need to really enjoy the sport and really be passionate about it. And then they need to truly say, I am a cross-country skier, that's who I am. So that piece of the puzzle must be in place to have true talent ID. And I've yet to find a great test other than to ask the athlete, are you a cross-country skier? I find this interesting how when you are looking at sports... Let's take let's take basketball. Talent identification there, it is a lot more physical based. It's based on wingspan, height, speed, explosiveness, um, agility, ball handling abilities, all those things. And it's also based on what they can show on the, the court, their skills that they've acquired. And rarely are our coaches completely invested in like does this person identify as a basketball player? Because that that's almost a, an assumption. It's a given. And the, the dollar signs at the end of the, the path sort of do that. Um, but yet here in cross country, we have our national team, the highest level of sport. We do have to have that discussion about an athlete. Like, is this what they're actually going to do? And, and, and as you will see later in the show, we talk about people retiring early. Some of these athletes are like, yes, I'm a cross-country skier. I'm all in. I'm going to do this. I want to be at the Olympics. That's my goal. But they don't really have that killer instinct of my whole life is riding upon this career. There's pretty much no athlete that is like that on the U.S. ski team. Maybe Jesse Diggins. And she could walk away from the sport and be totally set for life now. But she kind of is one athlete who like... I think when she made that commitment of like, I'm not going to go to college now and I'm going to do this, she, she, she sort of took all of that investment that she would have brought towards a more traditional career path and put it in skiing. And what we see often in the U.S., I think, is like athletes, again, going back at 16, 17 years old, they've committed to it. But at 25 or 26, they're totally fine walking away, retiring, and now I'm going to go to college, or I've already been to a Dartmouth, and I'm going to use that degree and just love go and love a normal life. It was a great chapter. And you don't have that for scouts dealing with NBA prospects. Like, they are, they're invested in a different way than anyone in any U.S. ski team pipeline situation. And, and I do, and I think, well, on the one hand, you might go, well, isn't it better of what you see in skiing? Like, it's more healthy and people can just do other things. Yeah, that's definitely true. But there is also an impact of that do or die element um, that is just not existent in skiing. And I don't think it ever would be again, going back to like who skis, what is the nature of it? There's a, there's a wealth factor to it. So there aren't people coming off quote the streets and like skiing is their ticket that, that just doesn't really happen anywhere, probably in the world, except maybe Russia. You could maybe say that. And, and, and you look at the, 
the cutthroat competitiveness in that nation, that could be a, a big reason why. It's a little more like Kenya with running in there, where like this could be your ticket, and if you if you really devote your life to it, it could be your way out. Um, so I find that first thing interesting that that um, we don't really see that in a lot of other sports. You do see it sometimes in the NFL prospects. They talk a lot about mindset of those athletes. Like, are they in it for the long haul? Do they have the right pieces mentally? Uh, but but what Brian here is talking about, I think, is absolutely I can imagine being a huge challenge for him. For one thing, he's he's bringing in athletes like a Sam Smith, who's multi sports star, might have goals in other areas, and you're bringing in young people who they have a lot of they have a lot of things before them that they could do. So actually choosing cross country skiing is a piece of the puzzle. But then beyond that, you're trying to find that killer instinct, like basically the how much does this person want it? What are they actually willing to do? How far are they willing to go to be great? And it sounds cliche, I think, to say that that is the most important aspect in talent identification. But there is a massive hint of truth to that. And cross-country skiing, because, and alpine skiing too, because because the nature of the sport lends to this arms race that becomes financial and you end up with often kids who haven't really had barriers in their lives, generally speaking, kind of rise up to the top, they're not really toughened up to that where they're like um, able to dig deep, go, no, I want this so bad. I'm willing to currently be completely off the radar of of this team and I'm going to get myself there by a matter of will like the Michael Jordan competitive I I'm I refuse to lose mantra that that aspect it's rare in the US ski pipeline I'm not saying it's non-existent and we definitely have some athletes I think even on our team now who have gritted their teeth and made made their career like really sculpted it almost out of nothing but at the youth ages, the kids who are at the U16 camps and the U18 camps and, and the juniors, junior nationals, there's not a lot of those types of kids there. There's a lot more really privileged kids there. And I think that's kind of unfortunate. It's maybe kind of a reality. I'm not really sure what you do about it. But regardless of those questions, I think it does bring up this idea of why talent identification can be difficult. Because if what Brian is saying is true, that we have to try and figure out how invested this kid is in this sport. And then on top of that, just their their gen their drive in general. Sure, they're dedicated. Their their parents have been schlepping them, you know, to two a day practices since they're four. But that doesn't really test the internal drive of an athlete. <laughs> like and and that's that that whole package has to be there. So I thought that was an interesting point, definitely um, definitely part of the discussion. Now, another thing that I will say was brought up in various ways was the usage of the NCA system and the value of it um, in the ski pipeline. And I would just say in sports in general, there, there's, there's no debate that the NCA is used um, naturally, organically, however you want to say it, in, in other sports, basketball, track and field, um, football. It's there. It works. Uh, it works. Quote, you know, cross-country skiing, skiing in general, the reason I think there's a huge issue is that sport in nations where it is successful has pretty much a club to national team route. And in America, we, we've we already established an interscholastic and collegiate you know, pathway system for other sports. And so skiing comes along and it's like, how do we fit this in? And now we sort of have this potpourri of club-based there's high school and then there is college there's the national team it's like it's just all of these different things that sort of depend on not always congruent you know desires and factors and, and it creates a problem so what would be the perfect ideal situation if I, if i had to back up and say well we have to make a uniquely american solution this would be the idealistic route for me it would be that you would have high school acting as the youth club um it, like Norway's club ages what 10 to 18 
that would be replaced by high schools across America that are that are providing very cheap, very competitive, but also very entry level, just the whole gamut, just like the early age clubs in Norway do, of skiing. And then, you know, where Norway's clubs age 19 to 22 provide opportunity and access to competition, that's where we have colleges. And, and if you could have that where there were just bazillions of middle school and high school programs with really incredible coaches and wax techs that are great, and then the same thing at the collegiate level, millions or thousands, I guess, of college programs of different ability levels and, you know, just have that everywhere. I think you, you could you could make an argument that if that was in place, just brilliantly, perfectly, way more programs, way better trained coaches, you would have the exact same thing you'd have in Norway. Almost right because you would have you'd have coaching and support from the beginning of the of the athletes' entrance into the sport all the way through when they'd make the national team. So you could go that way. I think you could also more more realistically, since you're not going to just get rid of all these clubs, is you could try to combine them and say clubs and high schools have to be in, you know cohesion working together so if you're a good skier and you're just a regular kid going to a high school you shouldn't be um, somehow overlooked because you're not a member of a club and I would say that's the biggest problem right now I think especially in Colorado you do have you have talent in the high schools that is overlooked because they're just because they're not in a club and I'm not going to be so I won't step out on a limb and say that there's some high school athletes that could just straight out beat many club athletes. I kind of think that that can be true on certain years, but it's, it's more than that. It's just that they're just not considered. And I do think that if you're a Brian fish and your, your idea is like your, your, or your job or Greta Anderson is to have a knowledge of everyone who's out there, you know, who could be good now now their job is so much harder because they have to go to a state like Colorado. They see the junior nationals results. But then, you know, if they're really going to do their due diligence, they should be going, well, who's this kid at Battle Mountain that ran 15, 20 in a 5K and he was second at state, you know, cross-country skiing? Should we be looking at him, <laughs> you know? You, and look at, look at who, you know, if you're talking about like a Sullivan Middow, probably one of the fittest high school athletes in the country, you know, most well-rounded too. He's like an Xterra world champion, world junior champion. Um, he's Nordic skis basically for a month or two every year, <laughs> you know, and like what kind of, what kind of potential could be there? Um, and not that he would maybe want to, you know, he's going to try and be a pro triathlete. But if there were U.S. ski team people just hawking over him, um, maybe he'd choose something else. And he didn't even win. You know, Ferguson St. John was the one who won all these events. So I think I think the most realistic solution here in America from that standpoint is you try to unify, at least unify in a way that clubs and high schools, those athletes are mixed together a little more. They're competing a little more or at a bare minimum, their schedules are not conflicting. So you could have an athlete who competes at the high school and at a club event. And I didn't talk to anyone who said, Oh, that's a dumb idea. Like all of them said, yeah, Colorado's messed up right now. In, in They didn't use those words, but basically that needs to be fixed. There needs to be better communication. There needs to be better solutions there because that, that shouldn't be happening. And Minnesota seems to have a, a good way of doing this where the high schools provide um, the competitive opportunity and they don't get in the way of the club competitions. And so you, you have just a really robust high school system. That is beautiful because the Jess Diggins are there right alongside someone who maybe did decide to start skiing when they were 17. <laughs> now, I will say that person who joins late or isn't a state champion or doesn't even make it to the section team. The reason those people matter to this discussion are if they are enthusiastic about the sport and they become a lifelong participant, you've just grown the culture a little bit. You've just grown the culture of skiing a little bit. You've grown another couple participants. Maybe their kids then are introduced to skiing when they're young. Um, and this is important. If you if you realize it, and I hear this from people a lot, actually, you know how in the Midwest, cross-country skiing is a lot more cultural. It's, it's a piece of that fabric more so than in other parts of the country, perhaps more than even anywhere in the country. I mean, 
you could argue, I guess, in the new in the New England region, it's somewhat that way too. But um, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, that area, that is where the you know the Norwegians like came and Scandinavians came and set things up right away, um, and they tried to make that like a second home. And so that the fact that you have a lot more high school skiers and people who then end up growing up and skiing the Berkey and just staying and skiing a long time, if you show up in a Midwest citizens race, like there's probably going to be 200 or 300 people. And if you come to a Colorado race, there might be like 18 people in your race that that happens fairly frequently, sometimes even less. And so that does matter if you're talking about, well, what's the goal? We want more people to enjoy skiing. Well, then you, you do want to create a robust system that is accessible and that that kind of has to include high school because the clubs can be great for kids who are really motivated and want that next step but you need to have a lot of high school programs for for kids who just kind of want to participate and they're not really sure of their ability they're not really sure that commitment level and they shouldn't have to be they shouldn't have to decide when they're 11 that skiing is what i want to do so mom i need you to you know sign me up to be in this club that shouldn't be a necessity and a reality, I don't think. Even in a sport like skiing, if we're going to make the kind of comparison to gymnastics where you you pretty much do have to do that, skiing isn't all the way on that spectrum. So I, I do think we need that. And even if even if you want to make the argument that it is all the way on that spectrum and, and to be great, you have to commit when you're 10, it still shouldn't eliminate the fact that we should have high school programs that that enable an athlete who just who just signs up when they're 13 and ends up being really really good having a chance to be on our national team we just we need to, to broaden that more all right speaking of the ncaa i had another um t- thought i wanted to talk about here and this was actually heard this first as it relates to running because i was listening to the let's run.com podcast and they were um, having kind of an argument about whether or not it was good for the sport if athletes were either leaving college to turn pro, going pro, you know, either right at a high school, basically just not being really committed to the college experience or their college team. And this is a little bit tied into the, to the um, now new ability for college athletes to make money, the image and likeness contracts, that whole concept. And also the transfer portal, which gives athletes just a tremendous amount of ability to move around wherever they want to. So the first thing I'm going to say about this is there isn't really a legislation piece that you could put in place. I don't think necessarily to somehow correct this. I think the fact that there are, quote, problems here and those problems being coaches are struggling, they, they're frustrated, athletes are leaving, they're coming for a year, going to a different school – they're kind of being used, anything like that. Um, also, another problem being maybe an athlete goes to college for a year or two, thinks they can turn pro, they don't, they don't have a degree, now they're they're on the side of the road, basically. The the thing is, is w- the argument that we w- this shouldn't happen, it's based in the fact, it's a symptom of a bigger problem, which is that kids just don't really have that same character piece of commitment instilled. So many of the problems that we see in our country that we try to fix or complain about really come back to what was happening in this individual's family growing up. You know, like, how were they raised? And this is, I think, another one of those pieces, this specific element of the discussion. Because it really wasn't a question even a generation ago of, like, you make a commitment to a college, you're going to make that commitment through, you know. Um, And... I transferred because our men's track team was cut. So I would have stayed at the school. Um, I made that decision. You know, if you had a relationship with a coach, I, I can't I can't really imagine just just playing that system and thinking really about, quote, my best interests. Um, that that piece went to Ben there. So that that is missing for sure in this generation. And like so many issues in society, so many societal ills, it really comes back to fathers and mothers doing their jobs raising their kids honestly but but i think there's this other part of the discussion that um i find to be a recent development that i'm going to put some blame on the colleges because lost in here is this idea of the kids should be able to do what's best for them now it used to be that 
what is best for a kid is to get a college education because there is value there. And I honestly don't know if that's true because of the product being offered from colleges. I think a very good college education still is, well, I'll say this, a very good education is still more valuable to a a person, 99.9% of people. Um, and, And that tiny fraction being, if you are someone who is going to make millions for a career as a professional athlete, then I guess if finance finance and money is your is your definition or standard for what's best for you, then a college education wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be what's best for you. But it is my belief that a a, a great education would have that value for for really everyone else. And even to some degree those the Michael Jordans as well. So and Michael Jordan had an education, right? He he actually graduated from UNC. I believe he went back. He spent three years there, but I think he went back and got his degree too. Um so anyway, I say that because what I think a college education really is about is teaching you to um, be able to teach yourself. We have we've gone into this weird societal position where we think like, if this is the career path you want to do, then we should just train you to do that career right now. You know, as a as a freshman in high school, we're going to put you on this track. We're just going to give you classes just to do that career because you already know what you want to do. Why are we wasting time? Um, teaching you math and teaching you some of these other subjects. We should just be focusing on this. I think that's extremely harmful for people. You know, like what ends up happening, no matter what job you have, the thing that determines your success there is your ability to learn that job. And that's dependent upon really the capacity you have intellectually, um, problem solving, critical thinking. Well, how do you develop that? It's by doing all those other subjects when you're young. Like, I've always tried to teach teach my own students that you're not just learning Algebra 2 because someday you're going to need these Algebra 2 skills. You're learning Algebra 2 because right now at the point in, this point in your life, your brain is still developing and growing and it is like a muscle and we're training it so that when you're 22 and 23, your capacity for knowledge is going to be way bigger than someone who either dropped out of school or decided to not take this class and just focus on the little things they were going to do for that one job they, they knew they were going to do their whole life. And, and I mean, there, there's also the whole argument of how could you possibly and why would you possibly pigeonhole yourself for one career path for the rest of your life? How many people actually do that? Even people who go to college and get a four-year degree, how many of them are in one job their whole life? Some of our parents have. Actually, you know, it's weird. I, I pose that question and then I think of like, my dad almost was that. You know, he, he, he wasn't. He was a teacher for a while and then he worked for Exxon Energy for the rest of his career, you know, but... Um, Like, yeah, anyway, today it's almost a guarantee that that won't be you. So you're going to show up at a job and you're going to have to learn all those skills on the job and you're going to have to learn how to do your job and your ability to do so is going to be dependent upon your capacity and that is determined by how rigorous your education was. So when we either offer offer students and young people this whole, we're just going to set you up for the one career path you want, or we offer them just garbage liberal arts education, which is kind of more what the higher institutions are giving them now, there really isn't a value. You know, like I, I, I think the biggest scandal ever right now is the money that we're giving to higher institutions for the product that we get in return, it's kind of ridiculous. So I, I actually can't really side with colleges who are, you know, if that was their call, like, man, I really wish we could keep NCAA athletes for longer. Like, you know, I'm really glad I grew up where college meant something and there was really great value in that experience, but I'm not really sure I can say the same thing now. And I really don't know if I could, I'll be able to say the same thing 10 years from now. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're going to, charge a lot of money and then give someone a slip of paper uh and now that in the marketplace that slip of paper becomes more meaningless i don't know why you would go to college you know but i do also know that the alternative isn't you know let's create all these tiny little colleges that are set or educational spheres just for i I gotta back up we shouldn't just have companies creating like educational things of like um, here's how you would work at Microsoft as a IT person, and we're just going to train you just our systems, all that stuff. Like, again, you don't pigeonhole that. That's not how learning works. 
you know, you, you, you want to grow, you want to grow your brain's capacity and you do that at a young age by challenging it in a variety of different angles. So we need that in education. We should, it is, in my opinion, not a positive thing when I hear about programs for like freshmen in high school to like do things that are related to jobs, you know? Um, and this actually brings up another, I know this is like a little bit on a political side, but you know, when we were raising the whole minimum wage thing for some of these jobs, whether it's like working at McDonald's or Dairy Queen, um, entry level jobs, I think we have also kind of come to this idea as a country that like that could be a job where you would support a family off of it. Whereas even when I was in high school, we all looked at, at those jobs like that's the job when you're 15 years old that you get in the summer between your sophomore and junior of high school because you want to make some extra money so you can buy Aeropostale jeans, you know, like um, and and that's a great learning experience for high school kids to go make seven dollars an hour doing really hard work and feeling good about earning a paycheck. That's a really valuable experience. And it, and it also it does have a motivating effect for those kids of going, you know what, um, I think I do want to go get my college degree so I'm not making $7 an hour so, so I can make $35 an hour and, and I can be doing something I really love because there was a lot of aspects of you know making blizzards uh, that I didn't really enjoy, making milkshakes that I didn't enjoy. <laughs> and, and customers were annoying. Like, I don't want to be in this forever. And, and so I, I think there's kind of a harm, this harmful idea and it's just a weird idea that, no, those, those people – you know, working at Dairy Queen should be making $22 an hour because they need to support their families. Like that job was never for that, you know? And, and I have talked to some, some people who either they own small businesses or in that area and, and they're not happy about that either. Like they enjoyed having a worker that's there with them for two or three summers and then they go to college and, and the next one comes through. So I don't know, like, you know, a little, little far off the scale of what we're going here on the sports discussion, but just wanted to bring that in. All right, so um, we are trying to, uh, because Ajay, um, the interim producer, has told me that according to our um, analytics, many listeners, they're not, they're struggling to make it beyond the 15 or 16 minute threshold of the Cedar Skier podcast. So we're hoping that you are engaged. You made it this far on the show, but, but we don't want to overwhelm you with a lot of these irrelevant opinions of mine. And so we're going to wrap up this show, trying to keep it under an hour. And, you know, this is the opening of our third season. So we'll have some more shows quickly coming at you. I just want to tease them a little bit because I, I left a lot on the table here. So just a little bit of some, some things coming up. We definitely need to talk about, um, as far as U.S. skiing goes, I want to I give you some opinions on the Olympic selections. I didn't really do this a lot, but I did have, I had a few issues with some athletes that were left off of the team. And so we're going to talk about that. And then I also want to tease the fact that we had also some athletes retire this year. And I have a little bit of an opinion about what I think this might say about possible issue either either with U.S. skiing or or something. Uh, there, there's something there that needs to be looked at uh, with some of the athletes there. And then, of course, it won't go away, but the, the body image discussion, we have some new threads, some new articles, some Twitter feed stuff. It's dramatic. It's high stakes. And we're going to bring the opinion that no one wants to hear. Um, even though you know it's true. Uh, and then, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, let's see, what else did I have that I, I wanted to bring up for our next show? Um, oh, we got to talk about, well, let's see. Yeah, I guess that's that's some of the main stuff. I won't tease anything more because then, you know, you won't come back to listen to it. So you've been listening to this. Year. Oh, no, no. Well, let's end it on a positive note. Before I close you off here, I did, did want to bring up this story because <clears throat> this is this is fun. So you know the Manitou Incline, p- perhaps. Manitou Incline is this um, kind of hiking trail. It's about 0.8 miles, 1.42K. It gains 2,011 feet in that distance. So it, it has 2,744 steps from the bottom to the summit, although the top step is numbered 2768. The number of steps changes occasionally with trail maintenance and deterioration, apparently. So the Manitou Incline is kind of this this iconic um, thing. 
and there's there's been some records and some some fitness challenge things related to it and so i'm going to read to you this paragraph because i just love <laughs> i'm fascinated by this stuff i think i came across this when i interviewed joe gray uh and, and he he set the the record now uh for the incline and I'm not sure if Joe Gray's record is the most amazing thing here. So I'm just going to read this to you. The verifiable satellite track record was set September 25th, 2015, 1745 by U.S. Mountain Running member Joe Gray. Also notable is the time of 12-time champion of the Pikes Peak Marathon, Matt Carpenter, 1831. Female record is attributed to Allie McLaughlin of Colorado Springs, 20 minutes and 7 seconds. First of all, Matt Carpenter, if you don't know Matt Carpenter and his story and just his amazingness, like, yeah, that's worth Googling too. Matt Carpenter, what could he have done? Or, you know, what I shouldn't say what could he have done. He was an amazing runner, but like, is he one of the most aerobically gifted athletes in world history? He might be. He might be up there. In 2012, local resident Ed Baxter, 58, became the first person to complete the Inclinathon, which is 13 consecutive trips up and down the incline in one day completed the effort in just over 13 hours. Okay, that's kind of amazing. So he did like a marathon, basically. In 2012, Brandon Stepanowicz broke the speed record for the Inclinathon, 11 hours and 46 minutes. In 2014, Stepanowicz also completed the first ever Ultra Inclinathon, completing 22 laps of the Incline in 24 hours, the most ever completed in a day. He gained 44,000 feet of altitude in this endeavor. And the reason I'm reading this to you, it just seems like it keeps getting more and more ridiculous. But that's insane. 44,000 feet of altitude of to gain. Like, that is... I mean, when you think about hiking Mount Everest, too, by the way, you're starting at, what, base camp, 14,000 feet up to 29. So you're gaining 15,000 feet in, like, three weeks. Um, so that's kind of crazy. 44,000 feet in a day. May 16th, Wade Gardner broke the speed record, 2015, by the way, broke the speed record for the Inclinathon, 10 hours and 34 minutes for that. All right. Now, 2011, Greg Cummings, a local resident with type 1 diabetes, became the first person to hike the incline more than 500 times in one year. He hiked the incline 601 times and ascended Pikes Peak 34 times, setting the world record for elevation climbed in one year at just under 1.4 million vertical feet. Oh my gosh. In 2013, Roger Austin ascended the incline 719 times. He set the, the incline record to 1.45 million vertical feet in a year. Cummings comes back though, okay? 2014, Greg Cummings ascended the incline. <coughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, okay, so the previous record is 719. You kept that in your brain, right? 2014, Greg Cummings ascended the incline 1,400 times, 330 consecutive days before the incline closed for repairs. So he basically doubled what Roger Austin did, and he didn't even have the last, what, 35 days of the year. Along with other ascents, Cummings reset the world record to 2.9 million vertical feet climbed in a year. Again, so pretty much doubles that but roger austin comes back 2015 he ascends the incline 1719 times and climbs 3.4 million vertical feet the ascension of this record is just unbelievable right when you heard 1.4 million vertical feet you were probably rightly in awe which if we go let's let's find out 1400 or 1.4 million feet. If you divide that by per day, you're climbing. So the original record is 3,835 vertical feet climbed per day. That's 1.4 million. Now they are up to 3.4 million. Oh my gosh. So what is that feet per day? It comes out to 9,315 vertical feet climbed per day for a year. I mean, I can. I can imagine if you if you did about 4,000 feet of climbing per day for a week, you'd be shot. Like, that would be a really hard Jim Walmsley-like training week to, to put that in. I think Walmsley has probably done some weeks where he's done 10,000 feet per day. 
But I mean, even go out and ride your bike and climb 10,000 feet in a day, that's a monster day. That's a monster day. Even in a century ride, that's a monster day. A 100-mile, 10,000-foot climbing day is difficult. That that will punish you, and it's not easy to do in for the average person in under seven hours. So... I don't know. This is just crazy. So we're at, where are we at? 3.4 million vertical feet. Along the way, Austin set the record for most inclinathons in a year at 26. Well, good for him. So he did the marathon thing that many times. All right. It looks pretty much like it's all done, right? Like Austin has come back. He's claimed it. But Cummings, the local resident with type 1 diabetes, at the age of 62 on January 11th, 2020, he retook the one-year incline ascent record by completing... 1,825 ascents in the previous 365 days. He set the reset the world record to 3.6 million vertical feet climbed in one year. And that is where we'll leave you. Greg Cummings, 62 years old, 62 years old, basically climbed an average of 10,000 feet per day for a year. Incredible. So I just, I, I wonder how intimate he is with the Manitou incline steps. You know, we, we become intimate with our favorite routes, running, biking, whatever. I mean, that is incredible. 1,825. I didn't even do the math of like dividing that for a year. So let me quick for those of you in your brains, you know, if you're better, better than me, that's, that's an average of exactly five Manitou inclines per day. Uh, and I, I don't know exactly how fast he's doing that, but you know, if Joe Gray's record is 1785 for the ascent only, right? Is that what it is, right? It's, um, oh, I guess it says, it doesn't say for the ascent. It just says, hmm. That's got to be just for the ascent, though. I don't think that would be up and down. I don't know what the time is for sure. Well, anyway, that's a lot of times walking up and down those steps. So um, if you enjoyed this, please Go to cedarskier.com. You can read some of our other stories. And we'll be on the podcast on Shovel Lake Radio. Shovel Lake Public Radio, sorry. Uh, we'll be on there again uh, later this week with some more shows. we got a lot more content, trust me. Um, and I'm always dreaming up strange takes on things. So we'll be sure to share them with you. We hope you enjoyed this show. As always, like I, I like to close, keep on skiing, keep on striving. Trying to go higher. Feels like I'm surrounded by clowns and liars. Give it all away, I want it all